just be just a little nicer. A little nicer. Stick to your principles. Stick to the things that you believed in. You know, you know, never stop advocating on behalf of what you believe in. Advocate for what you believe in. Just probably be just a little nicer about it. Don't change. And you're going to find out that you get a lot farther. You are now entering a new paradigm. So here is my issue. I wanted to find the answers to life's biggest questions. Things like, how do I become happy and live with purpose? How do I make more money doing what I love? And what does it mean to be truly successful in all areas of life? My name is Josh Forty, at Josh Forty on Instagram, and I ask life's biggest questions and share the answers with you. My goal is to help you find purpose, happiness, and open your mind to new realms of possibility by helping you think differently about everything you do, know, and understand. On this podcast, we think different, we dream bigger, and we live in a world without limits. This is a new paradigm. Welcome to the Think Different Theory. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Think Different Theory. My name is Josh Forty, and we have a very special guest today. In fact, I am very excited about this. Um, this guest, I actually had no idea who he was until I read his book. He is the author of the book, Never Split the Difference. And when I first saw the title of the book, I remember thinking, oh, okay, so this book is going to be uh, about if you're in negotiation with someone and they're offering you $50 and you want $70, don't, don't take the $50. It, it's, quite, it's quite deeper than that. There's a lot more that goes into it than just that. And I'm very excited to bring on uh, Chris Voss to us. He is the former FBI hostage negotiator. He is the CEO of the Black Swan Group and a sales professional. Chris Voss, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the Think Different Theory. Yeah, Josh, my pleasure, man. I'm going to enjoy this conversation. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, I read your book. I don't know, this was probably eight months ago or so for the first time. I was really big into reading and uh, studying sales. I've read a lot of different sales books and I posted a picture on it. I remember kind of geeking out because you liked my status on Facebook. And um, I actually read the book like two or three times now. It's such, such a good book and it covers so many things that I don't think a lot of people think about when it comes to sales. But for those people that don't know who you are, I want to go quickly into just a backstory of your FBI days, how you got into that, and then leading up to where you got into sales and to starting your company now. Because I think the backstory here is really crucial and brings a lot of context to why you're so good at what you do. So take us back. You're going to the FBI. How did you decide, I'm going to go to the FBI? Like, How did that happen? <laughs> you know, like most of the cool things in life, it sort of fell out of the sky. I, uh, I was a police officer, cop, KCMO, Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. KC is a great town, man. Great Midwestern town. Got a lot of advantages. And, uh, you know, um, my father wanted me to advance up the ladder. You know, your dad's going to have ambitions for you, especially if your father paid for a college degree and you went out and got a job that didn't require a college degree. <laughs> You know, the old man's looking on, looking to get a return on his investment, right? That's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, he encouraged me to look at federal law enforcement. I didn't know one federal agency from another. DEA, CIA, FBI, NRA. I mean, I didn't know what any of these were. 
But he had a buddy who was with the Secret Service at the time, and uh, I spoke to the guy on the phone. And he said, hey, man, I have traveled all over the world with the Secret Service. Now, I know I got a convoluted accent, but I did grow up in Iowa. And so at this point in time in my life, I'd never been anywhere. I mean, I, I don't even know that I'd even seen Canada from across the bridge. <laughs> so the idea that somebody would pay me to travel all over the world, I'm like, oh, now I could get into that. Right. So Secret Service wasn't hiring at the time, uh, to my good fortune. Not that the Secret Service is not a bad job. It's a great job. Just probably wouldn't have been for me. The FBI was, and I didn't know one from the other. So I put an application with the FBI. They hired me. They hired a bunch of folks at the time. I ended up in New York City uh, and loved it and became a hostage negotiator there and uh, you know, on a bunch of other things fell out of the sky. And here I am on your podcast. And here we are on the podcast, which is so awesome, talking about sales and all that. But, okay, first off, I, I got to start. If you're from Kansas City, are you a sports fan? All right, so from Iowa, lived in Kansas City, absolutely a sports fan. Love the fact that the Chiefs, the Chiefs are doing awesome. So uh, if you're going for the Chiefs there, yeah, I'd love to see the Chiefs do well. So I was at the AFC Championship game. Ah. I was fifth row, and I'm a huge Tom Brady fan. So I lucked out. Wow. But, but yeah, I, I had a great – Yeah, that was, it was some of the greatest football ever. Uh, my girlfriend bought me fifth row tickets behind the, the Patriots bench for my birthday, which was uh, two days or three days before that game. And so I, I had this the best day a, ever. This is just short of the perfect girl for you, huh, man? I, I'm telling you. I'm telling you what. My, my mother told her that, quote – I don't think there was a more perfect gift in the world for Josh. So she wins there. I don't know how I'm going to top that. Nice. Yeah. She, I think she's got you, brother. You're I think she brother. does. Yeah. So, okay. So real quick though, FBI happens. How, what do they look for? Like, are you just hiring random people off the street or like, why do they pick you? Or do you know? <laughs> no, the bureau's looking for a lot of different types. Uh, it's a good job. Um, you know, whatever you're into, doesn't matter what you're into. Somebody's committing a crime along those lines. So, you know, you can investigate like uh, whatever kind of crime there is. Look, if you're into art, we investigate art theft. If you're into terrorism, I was interested in terrorism. You know, we investigate terrorism. If you're, if you think, uh, you know, Frank Abagnale from uh, Catch Me If You Can, you know, you want to go after guys that write bad checks. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're doing that. So it's a great job. Ultimately, if you're relatively patient, pretty much like anything else in life, with enough patience, almost anything will come to you. If you yeah. if you take a little, it's a, and it's amazing how quickly it'll come to you. Yeah, I uh, was a, I was on a SWAT team. I was into that at the time, but I w what I was really into was crisis response, and I ended up on a, as a hostage negotiator instead. Okay, so hostage negotiation. I've read the book. For those people that don't or that haven't read the book, um, you've you've been in some crazy situations that led you to really have to understand how people think and how like the processes that goes through people's minds. And so you're there, like what are some of the big takeaways that you learned in the FBI or things that like you don't think you would have learned elsewhere that you think the FBI does really well when it comes to understanding people? Well, you know, the great thing about, being a hostage negotiator is um, you start out assuming that some of the crutches that most people want are never going to be there. 
like there's a crutch that for us to make a great deal together that we have to have common ground. That's a crutch. It's a handicap. There's a crutch that I have to have alternatives. You know, our, my Harvard brothers and sisters advocate this thing called BATNA, best alternative to negotiated agreement. You know, and if you don't have a BATNA, you're screwed. That's a crutch. So it's really cool to start out negotiation learning from the beginning. Like, I don't have to have common ground with this person. I don't have to have alternatives. I could still make a great deal. And that's what the advantage of starting out from here to begin with is. And I don't care if I have alternatives. I don't care if I have no alternatives. I'm not going to be taken hostage by that. And I think those are the great things about starting out a negotiation where I started out from. And now, you know, we're taking this into business. When I started out, there was no such thing as emotional intelligence as a phrase. I mean, if you're aware in sales and business, uh, in any aspect of the life in general today, you know that you need emotional intelligence. Well, hostage negotiation is just emotional intelligence. So we really started out in a master class on emotional intelligence and how to make a great deal with whoever you come across. I mean, I think that's what the FBI really gets right. So I do want to get into sales, but I know my audience is going to want at least one story from the FBI days. So take us back to, and I'll let you choose, either your first one or your most exciting one that you were actually the lead negotiator on what did that look like and how like nerve wracking was that for you as you're sitting there? Cause you've negotiated in some pretty high profile situations, right? Yeah. 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 And you know what I love about most of the negotiations, um, you haven't heard of this, most of the stuff I did because we were successful. You know, there's a phrase in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, we get people out okay, and you're not going to hear about it because everybody went home, everybody lived, and mm. so yeah, we had some we had some high profile cases. I mean, I, I worked on a case one time with a Fox journalist. Really, very few people know about this guy. Steve Santani gets grabbed in the Gaza Strip. You, you, the reason you don't know about it is because we we got Steve Santani out of that, um, and he he went through a horrific situation. And we did it with some really interesting approaches that the bad guys never knew we were there. The most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. We negotiated through people where they had no idea we were influencing. Those are great negotiations where mm -hmm. your negotiation is invisible. So, yeah, um, a lot of stuff that I did you haven't heard of because uh, we did it well. <laughs> So going into the sales part or side of things and coming out of the FBI, what, like, I know you talked about emotional intelligence and, and you say that like the FBI taught you a lot about that, but like specifically when it comes to like the pressure of sales, because a lot of the audience that, that listens to this type of podcast and that, you know, is in the Facebook group and on YouTube and whatnot, uh, they're like, Hey, I get nervous, right? Or, you know, a big deal comes in, you know, I start to sweat, I get anxious or whatnot. Did did the FBI teach you things specifically on helping you keep your calm and keep your nerves down? Or how did you go about figuring that out as we transition over to the sales side of things? Maybe not so much when you know people's lives are at stake or high profile cases, but in this setting of just, I don't know, intense situations, be that sales, be that negotiations of any sort, how important is and how did you learn that? All right. So a um, couple, couple things that I think will be really helpful. You fall to your highest level of preparation. You don't rise to the occasion. 
you fall to your highest level of preparation. You perform as you've rehearsed. And when you're satisfied with the process, um, then you just let the process work its way out. You don't, you don't, mm. you don't get rattled along, along the way. I've, I've heard an analogy being, um, you know, a guy's walking a tightrope, guy or gal. They don't, they don't look at where they're going. They look, look down at their feet and they worry about the next step. You know, make the next step properly. Don't get rattled about where we're going. Let go of where you're going and focus on a process. And then in the FBI, I always learned we had the best chance of success, which means we fail sometimes because there's no guarantee of success. I just want the best chance of success. So get in your head. You like your process. You got the best chance of success. You do as well as you can. The universe is going to let you succeed as well as you as you possibly can. And then you get your practice in. You get, you get your reps in. And understand that there's no one move that ruins everything. It's always an accumulation. So if you got a bad feeling, you're headed down the wrong path, there's a pretty good chance you need an adjustment. Maybe just a two-millimeter shift. Maybe a tiny little shift. I mean, I love that phrase from Tony Robbins. And most of us that are Tony Robbins fans use the phrase, let's make a two-millimeter shift. You know, I would yeah. attribute that to him. So many people I know talk about that. So make a minor adjustment and, and then give yourself the best chance of success. And, 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 and that's, that's where you go. And uh, I, I probably rambled a little bit, answered maybe one of your three questions. <laughs> no, no, that's, that, that's really, really good. And I like that a lot, especially with the two millimeter um, part. I actually just wrote a, a playbook. It's about, I don't know, 65, 67 pages long or so about habits and about the mind and about um, you know, subconscious and whatnot. And I, I talk about that specifically in there, not the two millimeters, but I say that like when you're going to change your life, when you're going to go try to rewire your identity, your brain, like you don't start out by trying to go and change every single area of your life. You certainly don't go try to go to your biggest habit and try to eliminate it just like that. You start right. root cause and you adjust it just a little bit. And those, I don't know, who is it? Peter, what's his name? Peter Seng, I think his name, the American systems guy was like, hey, you know, the, the smallest changes yield the biggest results, but the areas of biggest leverage are often, you know, the, the hardest to find. And I think that's super important uh, to recognize and understand. Um, but, but shifting over now to the sales side of things, you, you got in, how, how okay, so let, let's back up. You, and, I, and let me point out, um, I was a salesman as a high FBI hostage negotiator. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm cold calling. I'm calling into the bank. That's a cold call. It's the ultimate cold call. The ultimate call. Calling into a bank. <laughs> and, you, and you know what I was selling? What were you selling? Yeah, jail time. <laughs> and and I had buyers. Death. I right. had buyers. Jail time versus death. Huh. That's, that's, and that's, I feel like that's such an interesting perspective to have too, because I feel like so, so many people are like, you know, they find it hard to make something not sexy or appealing, you know, appealing. And it's like, I mean, you're selling jail time and you're getting buyers from it. What, what is one, gosh, I have so many questions on this. How does one go and structure the offer? Like what, like what comes into that? How do you know what to, to position? Well, uh, it's the delay to save time. The secret of negotiation is letting the other side have your way. So, you know, you, you, I know what I'm listening for. I got to get them talking. You know, I'm not, I'm not selling when I'm selling. I'm not pitching. You know, I don't have a value proposition here. You know, 
The reality of my proposition is jail time and death. The reality of most salespeople's interaction with their client is, you know, I got the best solution for you. Pick my solution or you're screwed. You know, you're going to fail. You can't pitch it like that. And, you know, if that pitch worked, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you got, you got to get the other side uh, understanding you a little bit more. Like, here, here's a classic mistake most salespeople make. Yeah, I, I like this. I spend a lot of time getting to know my client. I mean, I really get to know him. I get to know him, and I can't get him to call me back. I had one salesman telling me that. I said, that's exactly the problem. And they, what? I said, say that again. I said, I spend a lot of time getting to know my client. I can't get them to call me back. I said, exactly. They got no idea who you are. You know them. You know everything about them. That feels very intrusive to them. Every time you talk to them on the phone, you use their name eight times. You know, they feel cut off. They feel cornered. They feel, you know, this microagreement nonsense. You know, the yes momentum, momentum selling, get micro agreements, tie them down. Everything you're doing makes them feel trapped. No wonder they're not talking, calling you back. Here's what I want you to do. Next time you call them on the phone, if I'm you, say, hey, it's Chris. You know, don't, don't say, hi, is Chris Voss there? Can I please speak to Chris Voss? Now, you're trying to be respectful with that approach. First of all, you're telling them it's a sales call. Nobody you know calls you on the phone and says, hi, is Chris Boston? I already know it's a sales call. I already know you're hustling and you're already hiding it from me. Start out and say, hey, it's Chris. Have I caught you at a bad time? You Now they know your first name. At least they know who you are. And you've immediately given control back to them. The secret of gaining the upper hand in a negotiation or sale is giving the other side the illusion of control. Now they feel in control. Now they know who you are. They're a little less tense. Their mind is starting to slowly come open. You're not hammering them with their own name. Hey, Chris, how are you today, Chris? Would you like to make more money, Chris? Would you like to have more free time, Chris? Chris, 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 Chris. I don't like that. I'm feeling trapped. I'm feeling cut off. Get out of that to start off with. So... You say the illusion of control. How does one maintain the upper hand while still giving someone the illusion of control throughout the conversation? Yeah, you know, it's uh, making somebody feel like there's a freedom of response. Uh, if you ask any questions at all, I mean, don't ask questions where you're seeking a yes. Now, that's there's three kinds of yeses, commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit. Now, you may be genuinely, legitimately, respectfully, simply trying to seek a confirmation yes. Many people do this. You know, is there anything about what I've said today that works for you? I mean, you're respectfully trying to seek a confirmation yes with that. The problem is they've been trapped with yes so many times that you're already creating mm. distrust in the relationship. Mm. You know, the, the used car salesperson the swampland seller, um, you know, whoever's got a hustle, the coupon book seller, you know, uh, $25,000 worth of coupons for $25. Does that sound like something that would be useful to you? Uh, come on. 
So don't start <laughs> verb-led questions where you're where you're seeking, hoping, confirming if you're after yes in any way, shape, or form. Give the other side the illusion of control. Only ask what and how questions if you ask what and how questions. Here's a crazy one. Instead of saying, do you agree with this? Say, do you disagree? Invite the no. Intentionally trigger a no. Jim Camp wrote this phenomenal book, which really got us started on this thought pattern to begin with. His book was called Start With No. And while it wasn't and is still is not his company's methodology to intentionally trigger a no, his whole philosophy was built around saying like, look, you can say no to this at any time. Tell me, tell me to go away. Tell me this doesn't work for you at any point in time. Please feel free to say no. And he understood that that's returning the other side, their autonomy, which actually makes them more inclined to agree. Hmm. And his people he was training with this started hitting, they started raising their, their close rates. They started raising their conversion rates just by inviting the no. Well, at one point in time in my company, we were like, hmm, what happens if we actually make them say no? You know, does, does the world end? Does the sky fall? Does, do cats begin to mate with dogs? You know, like, you know right. all kind of, is this the apocalypse? Right, right. And then we found out that, holy cow, when you actually get them to say no, like when you say, do you disagree with this? They'll say, no, I don't disagree, but here are the following problems. And they give you really candid answers. Mm. They turn right around and tell you how to make the deal. So, you know, that's, if you're going to ask a closed-ended question at all, have, it, have the answer be no, not yes. Okay. So I have so many things I want to say on that. But first, I've got to reframe this and come back to the transition from FBI to sales group to give some context. And then I want to dive down into sales a little bit deeper because I know the audience is absolutely going to love this. So you get out of the FBI. How old are you when you go into the FBI? I am just short of my 26th birthday. Okay. So my age, I'm 25 and a half. So you go into the FBI. When do you get out? 24 years later. 24 um, years later. Two days after my 50th birthday. 50th I've birthday. been eligible for, for retirement for two days. For two <laughs> days and you are out. So you, you come out of there. What, what's the transitionary process? Because I know you spend some time at Harvard, right? So like what's the... You get out of the FBI, which is you've been in it for 24 years. So you're pretty ingrained in that lifestyle. What, what's the next step for you in figuring out, all right, I'm going to go start a sales company. How, how, did, how did that come about? Because I feel like that might not be the most logical or the most normal thing for someone that's been in the FBI for 24 years to do. Or maybe I'm wrong. No, it's, it's not normal. And for all intents, of, I am the only... FBI hostage negotiator that is spun out into the business world. And, and actually, we're killing it. I mean, people love what we're doing. So, yeah. And it, 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 Why, though? Why are you the only one? Started transition <clears throat> probably about four years before I got out. Uh, first of all, wanted to actually wanted to learn more about business negotiation and bring it into hostage negotiation so we could get better. Uh, I know it's a cliche, but this is how you actually think outside of the box. So go to Harvard, say, hey, guys, let me go through your course. And, you know, I hadn't had any hostage negotiators attend the course as a, as a student. 
So they were intrigued by that. And they're like, yeah, you know, why not? Uh, Bob Manukin, phenomenal human being. Sheila Heen, Doug Stone. I mean, the whole crew there, phenomenal people. I go through the class and, and there those people say to me, like, look, you're doing the same stuff we are. You're just doing it in a different arena, but it's exactly the same dynamics. And on top of the fact, our protocols were more advanced than theirs were, which shocked me. Hmm. You know, they had, uh, and several of them said, you know, you, you guys have defined this in much more specificity than we have. It's clearer. You're, we were more advanced. I mean, you're the government. Stuff. What's that? I, said, I mean, you're the government. You, I, I guess you'd kind of expect that, yeah? Well, you hope for, right? That's not always the case. Right, right. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. So, you know, the, now I'm like, now I'm intrigued. Now I'm blown away. I, you know, I go through the, through the negotiation and, and I'm kind of getting the best of every one of the Harvard Law School students, which is, there's no shortage of entertainment there for me because I'm a small town boy from Iowa who barely <laughs> had a four year degree at that point in time. And you're showing up Harvard. Yeah, I'm slaughtering them. So uh, then it came closer to me getting out. Now, now I'm, now I'm thinking, all right, now this may actually be viable. So to transition out of the bureau, uh, I, I, I go to, into a program that they're running, which is getting a master's degree in a year instead of normally two. And while I'm there, they say, hey, come back over here and teach with us. You went through as a student, come through and teach. Further refine, let's further collaborate. And now, now I'm really into it, and I, and I know this stuff is working. If I do it, but now what I want to know is can I teach it? Right. Because just because you can do it doesn't mean you can teach it. Those are, yep. those are two different things. So, you know, they're picking it up. They're getting the idea. You know, my, my Harvard colleagues again, you know, Bob Manukin, Sheila Heen, Doug Stone, they're helping me get it better. They're helping me refine it. Now my son's involved. My son, Brandon, who's my director of operations now, he's jumping in and we're refining it. And, and so uh, uh, about a year after that, I get invited back to teach there again with John Richardson, brilliant dude. And then a few months after that, now I'm full on. Georgetown gives me a chance to teach it in their business program to oh, business wow. students who are there part time, which means they got pro they're they're working in the day. And you know, somebody who's uh, best kind of student is somebody who's got to apply it tomorrow morning. Yep, yep. I got a problem tomorrow morning. It started today. I'm in your class tonight. Let's see what you got. Tell me how to solve this tomorrow morning. And so then we real world application. And, and once we had enough case studies of everybody actually applying hostage negotiation in every kind of deal you can imagine, that's when we put the book out. Hmm. So what makes you go through and want to bring, like, as you said that while you were still in the FBI, you went to Harvard, right? And right. was like, Hey, I want to see this. Is that an assignment that you get? Or is that just something you're like, yo, Mr. Boss, whoever your boss is, I, I want to start seeing if we can learn something from business. How does that come about? Yeah, no, I, you know, I pitched the, I pitched the idea to my bosses. Uh, and I had, I had great bosses at the time were very supportive of learning. And, uh, and they really said, look, is, you know, whatever you learn, you come back here and you share it with us. And I'm like, yeah, that's it's an easy one. You know, I've always believed in working as a team anyway. You want to go fast, go long. You want to go far, go as a team. Yeah. And so they were, they were very supportive. Bring it back. Let's see, let's, see what the, let's see what they got. Let's see if we can collaborate. 
And so when you go and you do that, like you say you pitched it to your boss, and this has always been a question of mine, especially in a government scenario, but really with anyone that's good at negotiation, like I feel if I was like, if I were to pitch you something, you would know exactly what I'm doing at every step of the way, even if I was good, right? Like, you know exactly what I'm doing. So for your boss or whoever it is that you're going to, I mean, I assume that they have a lot of training in this same scenario. If, I mean, if they're your boss, how does one go and like convince the other person when they know exactly what you're doing at every step of the way? Yeah, and that's a great question because the real issue is not are you using negotiation skills on somebody. The issue is where are we going together? Mm. You know, one person once said to me, you know, your book is great because it's really about how do I get to this on my team and then how do we work together? That's really the issue. And my bosses know that we're working together. Um, you know, I am a relatively difficult person to supervise. But they always knew that I was about us working together so they could turn me loose because, uh, you know, I'm a loose cannon, but I'm shooting at the same target that they need to have hit. You know, the, the problem with a loose cannon is what are they shooting at? Well, I'm right. always shooting at a target that's good for us. I'm always right. about advancing our agenda. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter that I'm using negotiation skills on these guys. Because they know that I'm on their team. They know that they can trust me to have their back. Okay. And I think this is a perfect transition into the actual sales process. We just talked about you know you testing and proving these things over and over and over again uh, before you, you know, put out the book, start teaching it. And now you're talking about that it doesn't matter if someone knows whether or not you're using sales tactics on them or negotiation tactics on them. It's about where you're going. So I want to I want to dive into the actual sales methodology. Um, maybe getting in a little bit into the book material. Even what's the process if I'm selling and and I sell a lot to the the online space. A lot of a lot of the uh, my audience does as well. Agency services, marketing services, things of that nature. Right. So I got an appointment. I'm about to get on the call with someone. What's the process that I'm trying to take someone through? to get them on the same ground or the same level as I am and to, to paint that picture of where we're going. How do you start that conversation and what's the process that I take that I would take that person through? You know, well, well, don't be horrified over control. I mean, a lot of sales techniques is, you know, get control, get control, get control. All right. So if I'm on the other side of your control oriented approach, I'm like, why are you scared to let me help steer this? Is it because I'm going to discover you're trying to take me to a bad place and you're trying to trap me? I mean, and even if, even if where we're going is a good place, if you're trying to force me there, if you're trying to tie me down, if you're trying to get micro agreements, if you're horrified to let me speak, if, you're, if shutting your mouth as a salesperson for two seconds scares you, then you're making me nervous because now I'm losing my autonomy. I'm really worried about where we're going. I mean, why are you so afraid to show me where we're going? Even if you're taking me to a good place, I'm worried about that. So stop doing the stuff that scares people right off the bat. I mean, this autonomy is a, autonomy is a much bigger issue. And if as a salesperson, you've got people that are not getting back to you, autonomy is the issue. Now, in my company, we don't have anybody that's not getting back to me, not one. Most business people have no less than 12 individuals 
that are non-responders. They're ghosted them. They've gone dark on them. They're not getting back. Yeah, I would say 12 is, 12 is the average. Um, I'd be shocked if you have less than three, unless you work for me or you're one of my students or one of my clients. Because we don't have anybody that's not getting back to us. Because we're not fighting people over control, which means they get back to us. And think about how much time you're wasting wondering what's going to happen when somebody's not getting back to you. So good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like what, and this is after reading your book, talking with you here, I feel like it's like you're just trying to just have a, have a conversation with the person almost. You, like you want them to want to get back to you, right? Like that's, that's part of your goal with what you're doing. So you say it's about autonomy. How, how does one judge what's working, what's not working in that? So if I'm, you know, I'm going through, I'm learning about sales here and I'm going through and I'm saying, all right, this person didn't get back to me. What on earth went wrong? And I assume, you know, you record sales calls or, or have at some point so you can go back and listen to them. But what am I looking for to determine what's working, what's not working? Okay. All right. So let's get into a little bit of systems thinking. Uh, and, you, and we're on the right track. You know, systems thinking is my system is perfectly designed to give me the outcome that I'm getting. So if they're not getting back to you, it's your fault. Mm. First of all, people always get back to someone who listens to them. Always. How, how much talking are you doing on a sales call, like percentage-wise? He or she who talks most loses. You should be talking no more than a third of the time. Yeah. Um, because you're not gathering information. Yeah. You know, I had somebody correct me on the cliche. You know, the cliche is you got you got two ears and one mouth, which means that you should listen twice as much as you talk. You know what? That's not the ratio. It's probably closer to five to one because you got you also have two eyes and looking at them is going to give you feedback. You know, and then your nose. I mean, your sense. What's your sense? What's your gut instinct? What's your gut instinct telling you? If you're talking, you're not taking in what your gut instinct is telling you. I mean, you, you know, if you're talking more than 20, 25% of the time, you're probably running into trouble. You're missing information. Mm -hmm. They're not giving you data. They feel trapped. They're, they, people develop rapport with you by you listening. You know, uh, another phrase, interesting people are interested. The more interested you are in them and what they're after, the more interesting they find you, again, the more likely they are to talk to you. So then I get back to number one, you're not listening to them. Mm. Now, the other interesting aspect of this is if they're not getting back to you, they've also lost influence on their side of the table. What do you they've mean lost, by that? They've lost some effectiveness where they are. They become aware that somebody else is going to kill their deal and they have no control of it. They've become aware that they've been sent simply to gather information as opposed to make a deal. Talking to you is not doing them any good in helping them get to where they want to be. Now, your problem is you got to get back them back on the phone. You got to communicate with them and find out what the situation actually is. And if they're losing influence on their side of the table, this is an embarrassing interaction to them. And they're not going to tell you as a result of you asking questions. One mm. of the strategic advantages we give people is 
when everybody knows they have to gather information, nobody knows that questions are usually the worst way to gather information. You know, you got to gather information, ask good questions, ask good questions. Now, we don't gather information via questions. We teach people how to provoke responses that are unguarded and unvarnished and unfiltered. Hmm. And there's, you know, there's a little bit more than a two millimeter shift there. There's, there's a little bit more of a mindset change that we need to point out to you and we need to help you understand. But what it is really is making verbal observations. We call them labels. How to design a label where you say something innocently like, seems like it's really frustrating for you on, over there on your side. And what that's going to do is it increases the likelihood that they're going to tell you why it's frustrating. You say, it seems like, you know, it seems like you're under a lot of pressure there. Somebody's really demanding they're under pressure. You know, you could say, what, you know, what kind of pressure are you under? Yeah, you know, it's okay. I'm fine. Seems like you're under a lot of pressure. Yeah. I got to tell you something. My boss is kicking my ass. That too, that shift in wording, which is huge increases the chance they're, they're going to give me an unvarnished download on what's really going on on the other side. And now you've got more information to say, oh, you've got a boss involved. You're not the decision maker. Right. Or, you know, uh, uh, the mythology in sales is get to the decision maker. Why is that mythology? The real problem is the deal killer. We were in um, competition uh, via as, as uh, through somebody else two or three years ago. To, to get the contract with Verizon for, for, their, for their negotiation training. And um, uh, the pitch was being made by the company we were working with. We didn't make the pitch. That sounds very self-serving to explain why we didn't get the pitch. But through the, uh, through the process, the information we got back that was that fully 50% of the deals that Verizon signs are never implemented. Now, I'm at the tip of the iceberg guy. So I'm saying, all right, if this is happening to Verizon, they're an extremely capable company, that's probably a good rule of thumb for all companies. And 50% of the signed deals that's crazy. are not implemented. So what's the problem? The problem is deal killers on the other side. Mm -hmm. The sales rep is getting a deal signed, but there are uh, weasel clauses in it that the other side wanted to have put in. So that their deal killers can now kill the deal. You know, the terms and conditions phase that everybody goes through. Or the weasel clause that's the satisfactory clause. You know, they've gotten you to swallow. Turn around and kill the deal on you. It's not a sin to take a long time to get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. And this is a massive amount of time invested in not getting the deal because the deal killers on the other side of the table tanked it after everybody thought they had a deal. I, I want to repeat back what you said there. You cut out there just real briefly. And I want to make sure that I'm understanding or that the audience can understand what you're saying when it comes to deal killers versus decision makers. What you're saying is, and I know you talked about this in the book, is that most people in sales, they're like, hey, let's get to the decision maker so that we can get a deal done, right? Whereas you're saying that's not actually the issue. That's not what you're looking for. What you're looking for is the deal killer. So for example, the decision maker, I'm going to use a much more simplified than maybe a Verizon example, but tell me if I'm on the right track here. The decision maker may be the, the owner of the company, right? 
However, the deal killer may be the wife or you know, vice versa, right? And so what you're saying is, is you've got to get the deal killer, the wife on board. And if you can get her on board, then you're good to go. Yeah, just get the deal killer at least in the loop. A lot, a lot of the issues are the deal killers are mad that they were never consulted. They were never in a loop. Mm. So they sit back and they're like, all right, you, you know, you didn't pull me into the process. Just try and do this without. Mm. I'll give you another example. We got a, a we're talking about a training contract with a company. And we're talking to the CEO and the head of HR. Now, one would think that the CEO was the decision maker. And if it wasn't, then at least the head of HR was going to be part of it. And they said, yeah, you know, I got to tell you what, um, you know, the, the guy that's the head of sales, they are giving away the store. Oh, my God, their salespeople are just, they're getting killed. And, you know, we got to get this training for that guy. And we had a whole training schedule that we worked out and we were talking about scheduling dates. And then lo and behold, they stopped talking to us. Well, who killed the deal? The guy they wanted the training for most of all. Mm. Us bringing in a training process that he was not involved in bringing in sent the message to him that he was a screw up. Mm. And he wasn't, and that also it was his fault that his people were giving a company, they're giving a store away. Now he can't admit that, you know, that's an embarrassment. It's not right. my fault. And I'm sure as heck not going to allow you guys to bring in training that I haven't approved. Right, right. And he killed the deal on us and, and we never got the deal. And that was, a, that was the last time we got sucked into that. With sales, especially with things like this, how much of this is logical versus emotional? Uh, I got to tell you something. Uh, everything is emotional. I could lay out the brain science right now and explain, explain at length why the neuroscience supports the fact that we do not have a logical thought in our head because we tell ourselves that. But the neuroscience tells us uh, unequivocally or unequivocally, I always have trouble with that word, but I love it. <laughs> you know, I, I can't pronounce the words I want to use. But you know what they mean. That's what's important. I, 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 know, I know when I see it. Um, every thought that we have in our head, the neuroscientists are not certain whether thoughts start in the emotional side of, of our brain, uh, which is known as the limbic system, or simply go through the limbic system. But we do not possess a thought that our emotional apparatus, our limbic system, is not intertwined in neuroscience, which means we don't have a thought that lacks emotion. We don't make a decision without emotion. And, and actually, interestingly enough, further on, they've shown that if you pull emotions out of our decision-making process, we actually can't make a decision. We can follow directions. If this happens, do that. But we can't make decisions because we can't weigh things out because we weigh things out based on what we care about. So every decision, every salesperson is trying to get somebody to make is, in fact, a decision that has emotion interwoven with it. Hmm. Interesting. So when it comes to things like uh, objective thinking, per se, when you're trying to take a third party or a third 
yeah, third person view or removing as much emotion as possible from it to simply look at facts rather than letting emotion getting involved in things. And I like to think of that as objective or logical thinking, right? How much does logic, I mean, I, I understand what you just said with the emotion being part of everything, but how much does logic play into a, a sale or a decision-making process with someone? I mean, there's people that are buy off of emotion just like right like that. And then there's a lot, a lot more like the accounting type people I like to call them that are very logical, very numbers oriented. How, how much does that play into actually getting someone to commit to and follow through on a deal? Or is it well, really emotional? Well, what is their logic to start with? So yeah, everybody thinks they have a logical process, but at some point in time, you have to uh, evaluate, you know, give a value to the facts. You know, what matters here? What's important? Start putting valuations on things. Value is based on what we care about. So, you know, there's, there's our value issues are going to start with how we weigh things out emotionally. And then, then the mind bender, then, then the, and this is what we refer to in the book is bending reality. Loss, every, if you're a human being, and so this only applies to human beings, Lost things, lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain. That's from prospect theory. Mm. Danny Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics in 2002 because this is a fact of human life. What does that mean? $5 when I pay for it, I got to get $10 in return in value at least or I'm not going to make the deal. If you're offering me something that gives me a 20% rate of return on my investment, that's inadequate. I need a 100% rate of return on my investment. So you're pitching gain to me based on neutral third-party valuations of what a dollar is worth and what the return on investment is. No matter how much you lay that out, I'm not going to weigh it that way because I'm always going to overestimate the value of the dollars that I've spent mm. and I'm always going to underestimate mm -hmm. the value that I've received. And, and, and the value you received in a dollar, I mean, in, in terms of like value doesn't necessarily have to be just dollars back, right? I mean, it's whatever we perceive as value back, correct? Right. Now, and then we got we to start, I got to start getting into your head to find out what you perceive as value. So it's not always with the dollars and cents. So for someone that has lost maybe control or not, not control, they, they've had a bad conversation. They got on the phone with someone. They're negotiating, I don't know, a, a deal where they're doing, let's say it's 3000 a month or $5,000 a month, right? It's a deal for a year. It's worth 60 grand in all. Um, and they've had a, they've had a bad conversation and they can't get the person to call them back or they haven't been able to. What's the next steps? Are you following up, following up, follow up, follow up, like, you know, Grant Cardone style, or are you letting it go and moving on to the next one? Like what's, what's your technique for, all right, the, that conversation didn't go well. What's next? All right. So I value my time. You know, um, if, if you're too hard for me to get to, I'm probably not going to continue the follow up. However, my next follow-up is going to be a two-pronged approach. I'm going to send you a one-line message. It's going to go in an email or it's going to go in a text. 
and it's going to be one line and one line only. And I'm going to say, have you given up on doing business with me? Or have you given up on the, the sale or whatever it is? Have you, and I have sent that message out. Have you given up on X? Now, 999 times out of 1,000, which is pretty good batting average, <laughs> I'm going to get a response back somewhere between 3 and 30 minutes from sending that out. And it has to go out like that word for word. Hmm. I had a woman once said to me, I sent that text out and it didn't work. And I'm like, all right, cool, interesting possible tell me word for word what you sent out and she said yeah well I thought that sounded a little harsh you know and so instead of saying have you given up on doing business with me I sent out a lot a uh, message that said should we give up on having lunch together so we can discuss the process and I'm like I wouldn't answer that either yeah. <laughs> and you and you gotta understand where they're is uh, you got to be careful with, of the wheat crap. Your boss comes to you and said, "Hey, look, we got a problem." Is that what the boss means? Yeah, <laughs> no. He's like, "You got a problem. <laughs> you have a problem." <laughs> and so we disguise. You know, we use "we" as a disguiser for you all the time. It's just, it's so bad. So the the one line is, "Have you given up on doing business with me?" Word for word. Now you're going to get a response in anywhere from three to thirty minutes. I'm not kidding. But now, what do you do to follow up? They haven't been listened to. They're not talking to you because you've shown them that you don't listen to them. So when you get them back on the phone, what you have to do is summarize a perspective from their situation. Mm -hmm. Do not repeat your pitch. <laughs> do not repeat what caused them to go dark in the first place. Sounds summarize. so logical, but man, so many people do that. Everybody does it. <laughs> You know, su summarize it from their perspective and throw in, you know, you're probably having a hard time with this. You probably think I'm not paying attention to you. You got to especially summarize the stuff that you don't like. I mean, I would ask anybody listening to this also take a look at my TED talk because that's when I say, I must say it eight times. Summarize the stuff you don't like. Summarize the stuff from their perspective. Meaning what? What does that look like? All right, what that looks like is they're not getting back to you because they don't feel listened to. So you say you're probably not getting back to me because you don't feel listened to. You probably, you know, they're not getting back to you because the process is not moving them forward. You say, you know what, this process probably hasn't moved you forward at all. You're probably asking yourself why you're talking to me at all because that is, in fact, what's going on. You got to get the voice in their head to shut up. You don't get the voice in their head to shut up by contradicting it. You get the voice in her head to shut up by articulating what it's saying. Mm. Now suddenly you resonate with the voice in their head. And you keep at this until they say to you, that's right. Ah, so if you get it wrong, it's not over. You just keep saying, okay, well, then maybe this. Well, the great thing is if you're actually trying to solve it or articulate it from their perspective, if you get it wrong, they're going to go, no, 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 that's not it. This is what it is. They'll uh, correct you. Mm. Now, that co being corrected is one of the ideal places on a planet to be because people love to correct, and when they correct, they tell you the truth. I, I, I want you to repeat that one more time for the audience to hear because I don't think very many people understand that. So one more time for the audience in the back. 
being corrected is one of the ideal places on the planet to be. Mm. The other side loves it, which means now they're in an interaction with you that they love, mm. which bodes well for future interactions. Mm. And when they correct, they tell you the truth. So to the people out there that are like, oh man, if I feel corrected, I feel like they think that I'm not credible or that, that I don't know what I'm talking about and therefore they're going to see me as less and not want to do business with me. What would you say to that? You're leaving money on the table. Mm. You are killing yourself. You are, you know, it's an emotional intelligence move, one of the smartest moves on a planet. And be, your fear is getting in your way. And your fear is stopping you from living in a bigger house. Mm. I love that. I love that. So you said it was a two-pronged approach. And maybe we covered the second one already. But the first one was that text or that email, one line. What was part two of that? Yeah, get a that's right out of them. Part one no, is to get right. a no out of them. Part two is to get a that's right out of them. You get a that's right out of them. Now, your next move is, is exactly this. I'm going to do it perfectly. Dead freaking silence. Shut the front door. Shut up. <laughs> Let him fill the void. So it, if they reply back, you just don't reply. When, when you get a that's right out of them, they will never be more inclined towards you than they are in that moment. Mm. The secret of negotiation is letting the other side have your way. At that point in time, let them give you the deal. Let them outline it for you. Now, in the extremely unlikely event that they don't, but you have to give them a chance to do so, count 1,000s in your you know, one 1,000, two 1,000. If you get to 10, and only if you get to 10, then you say, how would you like to proceed? And, and that's if you're on, like, on the phone with them, not via email. Exactly. I mean, you... Um, it's hard to get a that's right out of somebody via email. Emails are bad moves. Emails are playing chess and you don't want to make seven chess moves in one email. Mm -hmm. So this is on the phone in person. So you get out. Okay. All right. Get a that's right out of them verbally. Shut the front door. If you count to 10 and you will not, you're, you will get to three and they'll start talking again. But that's in the event, you got to wait to 10. Very deferentially, you hit him with the magic H question. How would you like to proceed? How would you like to proceed? Now you know the roadmap and you know the best possible roadmap. If it doesn't work for you, you just made yourself smarter and you move on. And you move on. That's awesome. That's so, so good. How, what would you say to people? And, and you've mentioned this several times in this, and I, I think it's probably one of the most common fears in sales. I know it was for me for a long time and it is for many of the people that I work with being too aggressive or awkward or seeing like, you know, like, ah, oh, man, that sounds a little too much like this and just leaving it to where it's uncomfortable. How important is it to be uncomfortable or, or go into those uncomfortable situations? And what would you say to the people that want to be the nice guy, right? They're like, I don't like to put people, I don't like to do high pressure sales tactics or whatever those things are. What, what's the importance of that? Well, these are not high, pr high pressure tactics. And when you're trying to cut somebody off at the pass and get these micro agreements and you only want, yes, that's high pressure crap. And yeah, you don't want that. Now is, uh, how can I be assertive and be nice? 
I mean, I want, I want both things. How can I want to be a likable? I'm going to be likable. I don't care if you like, me. I'm going to be likable no matter how you react. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be positive. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to be deferential. And I'm going to assert on behalf of both of us. I'm looking for the best deal for both of us. These two things go hand in hand, mm-hmm. like ability, assertion. Uh, you have to. Otherwise, you know what? Live, live in a trailer. As a salesperson, go ahead. Look for another job in, two, in, in, in another yeah. year. Yeah. Uh, fall short of your numbers. You know, your fears are holding you back. Uh, respect and deference and credibility are your calling cards. If you can't be assertive, why are you being respectful and deferential and credible? If they don't like it, you don't want to do business with them. Yeah. No, that's, that's super, super good. Wow. Okay. Um, I have several more questions. I want to be respectful of time here though, as well. I want to kind of move into the wrap up phase here. Uh, we'll have a couple of rapid fire questions here at the end, but before I get to that point, um, when it comes to say like what you study and what you learn when it comes to sales, what's like, where do you go to learn about these things? I mean, you've been in the FBI for 24 years. You've done business with this. Obviously, you have your own book, which is phenomenal. I've read it multiple times. It's one of the only books that I've read more than twice. Um, where do you go to learn? Like, What are your favorite books? Where are your favorite learning tactics to, to learn and test sales and things of that nature? Yeah, no, we're, we're reading all the time. And we're talking about related type issues. So performance, learning, team building. Uh, two authors I'm a very big fan of, uh, Stephen Kotler. Uh, author of uh, The Rise of Superman and Stealing Fire, all about performance. Kotler's probably the planet's leading expert on the mindset of flow, which is where you want to be because you perform higher in flow. Hmm. Uh, Daniel Coyle wrote uh, The Talent Code and The Culture Code. Daniel Coyle's book, The Talent Code, is about how to get better. The Culture Code is about how to make your team better, how to help people get better. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're reading all the time, huge fans of those books. Eric Barker wrote Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Science of Success. Eric is a regular guy, has read, read everything out there <laughs> on success and, and put it in a book that's really interesting and, uh, and a great read. I mean, so we're reading all the time and always looking for people like that that can teach us more. That's awesome. Uh, so the podcast, Think Different Theories, it's all about mindset. Uh, we talk a lot about the conscious, subconscious mind, retraining your habits for success. Uh, a lot of business focus on there as well. Um, for you, when it comes to the mindset of sales and just success in general, what do you see as like the key determining factors for anyone's success, but specifically your success? What are you looking to do and constantly train your mind to spot and do on a daily or weekly basis to keep you in that flow? Like, what's, what are the key tricks? Uh, take action and learn. Um, look at from the uh, from another aspect. You know, what are the unforgivable sins? Um, inaction is almost unforgivable. Mm-hmm. And then failing to learn. I mean, you need those two things coupled. I mean, you've got to take action. Mm. You know, if you're not failing, you're not taking enough action. You how, leave money on the table. But how does one get over the fear of failure? How did you get over that? It, it, intellectually, um, your net gain is much higher as long as you're learning. Emotionally, 
just doing it enough times and coming to accept it. Now that takes a lot. We're, there is no rational reason to be afraid of failure. You run the numbers and the numbers are always in your favor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're, if, if you, if you fail three out of 10 times, then 70% of the time you win and, and rationally, intellectually, I mean, casinos are built on a 51% success rate, 51%. So anything over 50% and you're, you're net ahead. The problem is your emotional reaction to it because they said before, loss thinks twice as much as an equivalent gain. We remember our failures. We're embarrassed by them. Even if they taught us a lot, you say, I'm never going to let that happen again. I'll never do that again. You just left all kind of learning on the table. So emotionally, it's a challenge. Yeah. It is a heck of a challenge. And start to look at it in others and realize it's happening with you. I mean, I realize it happens to me all the time and it is an ongoing challenge to overcome because I'm only hurting me. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last, uh, last kind of question related to these topics, the topics of sales and what you've done. And then we'll get into some rapid fire ones. Um, when it comes to ethics in sales and being you know, an ethical salesperson, how do you draw the line of that? And I mean, because I think one of the biggest things for me where I struggled when I got into sales is there, you know, there's a saying that ignorance is bliss, right? So when I first got into sales, I kind of sucked at it. And then all of a sudden, after more practice, I started getting better and better and better. And I was great. This was going on. And then I started studying why I was good at it. And I started realizing the the process that was going on in people's brains. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is manipulation. I mean, in a good way, right? Marketing and, and sales or whatnot. But where do you draw the line as far as like, hey, I've taken this too far, too much, you know, playing with them, too much making them do this. Like this is not in the best interest for them anymore. And uh, I need to, you know, like just withdraw because I'm I'm trying too hard to convince them that this is good for them. Or is there a line there? Now, you know, um, people are going to find out, uh, your lack of ethics are going to catch up with you. Um, and it's, it's a, there's a tremendous temptation. You know, I can, I, if I lie to them, I'll get the deal. Uh, well, first of all, uh, there's a pretty good chance they're a better liar than you. And, um, they're just trying to test you to see if you'll lie to them. I mean, lying is such a bad idea and period. It doesn't matter what you think it's going to get you. Lying is a bad idea. Mm. So, yeah, ethics are very important. First of all, it's an issue of where am I taking them? Um, is this a total exploitation? Mm. That's, a, that's the first issue. Second issue is am I lying to them to get them there? Look, I, I got to tell you something. Even, a great, even the greatest liars are found out. And the other problem with lying is really high-maintenance stuff. It is, uh, you know, you, it's high maintenance on your end because you got to remember what lies you told, and then it's uh, uh, the influence doesn't last from a lie, which means you have to be in frequent contact with them. You have to be lying to them frequently to keep them on track. And I don't have time for that. I mean, we got too many customers that we can keep on track having a trust-based relationship, trust-based because we have integrity and we're not taking them into a bad place. Yeah. So, you know, I don't need frequent contact with them, which means that telling the truth in a long haul is a better strategy because it saves time. Yeah, for sure. Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much. I want to uh, go into some rapid fire questions just really quick here at the end, if you don't mind. But I really appreciate you coming on here uh, and uh, chatting with us. 
And we got to tell everybody about the newsletter. And too, the newsletter, right? yes. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get to that after the rapid fire questions. We All do. Right. I mean, we can talk about it now too. Um, but one of the rapid fire questions is actually kind of about that. And l- actually, let's let's start there. Um, you ha- you have events, live events, or just online? Uh, we train you however best suits your brain. We have in person live events. We've got online training in in several formats. Now we got we got a video training course out there which is audio and video together. Uh, we've got um, uh, just straight reading-based reading, reading based stuff. Uh, depends upon how you want to download your brain. We get, we get stuff on YouTube. We got live events, man. The live events rock. You gotta, I, you've got to bring your A game to come to a live event, though, baby. I mean, you better be ready to go if you're coming to one of our in-person events. And that's what I was going to ask. So c- comparatively, I mean, I-, I always think that live events are better than courses. I mean, I just think it sticks, the environment, the energy, you know, everything that's related to that. But like w- real quick, two second summary of like a live event. I'm walking into this. What am I, what am I walking out with? Like, what should I expect going into this? Yeah, immersion. Um, you know, you're working on a foreign language. We're going to bring you in. We're going to make you speak the language. We're going to show you how to be successful. We're going to increase your recognition. We're going to get at some of the subtleties that you, that we haven't got a chance for you to really dig into in the book. You know, what have we discovered about our main skills? What skills work most? What's your highest batting average? And then we're going to make you test drive them to a point to increase your comfort level. So actually, if you're listening to us in a class, you, you can get up and uh, <laughs> go make a phone call and cut a deal that you probably couldn't have cut before the day started. There you go. There you go. All right. Real quick, some rapid fire questions for you. Then we'll get to the, the newsletter as well. Um, favorite thing about the FBI when you were in the FBI? Uh, you know, match me. I mean, I needed, I needed autonomy. I needed to be very entrepreneurial in my approach. And I found bosses that were comfortable turning me loose and let me make cases. And I really enjoyed, you know, making my own cases versus being told what to do. Being told what to do. Does the FBI pay good? For law enforcement, the FBI pays pretty good. I mean, we're at the higher end of the, the pay scale. Uh, with the higher end for federal law enforcement, uh, you know, our basic pay scale is slightly higher than than for the DEA or for Secret Service or for for uh, Customs and Treasury. So, yeah, it's 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 a decent amount of money kind of puts you a little bit above middle class, you know, upper middle class enough. So you make a living. You don't go need you don't need a part time job to pay your bills to pay your bills. That, that's good. That's good. Uh, least favorite thing about the FBI. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, that's a tough question. I mean, I would occasionally, I mean, there's certain things uh, which are my least favorite thing about life. Uh, you know, you know, people who are are afraid to make a decision, uh, law enforcement executives across the board tend to be risk averse, uh, which you probably want. Right. Um, I am, uh, I lean towards risk. And, I couldn't tell. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I scare, I scare the hell out of a lot of, a lot of bosses in law enforcement. Uh, uh, and so when they first meet me, I'm a frightening person. <laughs> okay. Uh, number one piece of advice when it comes to sales. You know, let the other side talk first. I mean, if you, if you can get out of this whole, I got to pitch, I got to be in control. I got to talk. Mm. Um, if you can 
actually listen to what the other side says, you're going you, you're gonna to raise your batting average. I love that. I love that. Uh, purely from a FBI perspective or from a, a military perspective, um, or however you want to say that, what do you think of Trump? Uh, yeah, some stuff he does I like, some stuff he does I don't like. I mean, I'm, I'm much more of an issue-related guy. In, in, um, in the history of the United States, we have come to where no president is going to try to do anything uh, effectively. They're going to risk themselves in foreign policy until the second half of their second term. Look at every president. You know, they always want to weigh into tricky issues in the Middle East, second half of their second term. The only presidents who have not to date have been Carter and Bush 41, and they didn't get a second term. And the rest of the world has noticed that. Trump, on the other hand, has weighed in with both feet to foreign policy issues from day one, which has been a game changer. And... You know, like I said, I, I don't want to take a specific issue on a politically yes or no, overall good or bad. I like that he's changed the game in foreign negotiation. Jury's still out as to how that's, how that's going to go. But anybody that has a disruptive approach and then his willingness. I mean, I think he got slaughtered on Fox for saying this. But in trying to work things out with Iran recently, and he actually used empathy. He said, you know, I got no problem with Iran. I'd love to see Iran be great. You know, make Iran great again. I mean, that's very disarming, you know, and especially coming from him. You know, he's catching the Iranians off guard with that. They're like, maybe, yeah, maybe this is not a win-lose, zero-sum game. So, you know, I find that stuff interesting. He's a good negotiator, Yeah. As an assertive, he's the best in his class as an assertive. Now, there, there are both pros and cons, and uh, there's, uh, there's fight, flight, make friends, assertive, analytical, relationship-oriented. To be a complete negotiator, you need attributes of all three types, and if you only stay in one type, you have some serious limitations. He is principally only assertive that gets you so far and then you run into the same brick walls over and over and over again. Hmm. Makes sense. Well, Chris, your newsletter is where people can find out more about you. How would they go about finding that? Where can they go and, and what can they expect from that? Because, I, man, this has been a great interview and I really appreciate the time there. So where, where can people go to find that? Simplest way is a text to sign up function. Now, it is on our website, which is blackswanltd.com. Uh, but the simplest way to get to the newsletter, because it's a gateway to the website and everything else, is there's a text to sign up function we, we set up to make it real simple. Now, the number you text to is 22828. Now, again, the number you're texting to is 22828. The message you send is FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check put a space between FBI and empathy, which is going to want to do. It's got to be all one word, lowercase, FBI empathy sent to the number 22828. You'll get a text response back asking you for your email, sign up for the newsletter, and you're off to the races. The newsletter's free. It's short, sweet, and concise. That's what people love about it. Actionable information that it doesn't take you an hour to utilize that day. The last, yeah. One of the last articles we put out were 
Here are the utility companies most likely to renegotiate your utility bills. Here are the percentages they typically will drop. That's and awesome. here's the game plan for renegotiating your bill. That's incredible. So you can implement and act, you know, take action on stuff right away. Okay. So FBI empathy to 22828. Yes. All right. We'll put that down in the description as well, guys. Uh, please check, check this out. Chris is amazing. And if you have not read his book, um, get it. Chris, I hope to meet you someday and yeah. uh, just, I, I want a signed copy of your book. I want a picture with you. Um, you're someone that has really changed and, and helped me uh, get better at sales and get better at negotiations. In fact, shortly after I read your book, this is actually a true story, probably, I don't know, within three or four months of reading your book and applying the tactics, I closed my largest deal at the time, uh, which for me was 60 grand. Um, and, uh, I appreciate that. It's just, it's amazing. So thank you so much for, uh, for coming on here and sharing your wisdom with us. I got one final question for you though. Uh, and I end every podcast interview I ever do with this question. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you that. Fire away. All right. You are on your deathbed end of your life. All right. And I know there's a morbid thought, but it, it gets better. Everything that you've done in life, every person that you've touched and influenced, everyone that knows you has no idea who you are, like all your accomplishments are gone. However, you get to leave all those people, everyone that you've ever touched and come in contact with, with one final message that will stick with them for the rest of their life. What is that message to them? Just be just a little nicer. A little nicer. Stick to your principles. Stick to the things that you believed in, you know, you know, never stop advocating on behalf of what you believe in, advocate for what you believe in. Just probably be just a little nicer about it. Don't change. And you're going to find out that you get a lot farther. That's awesome. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, man. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Guys, this has been the incredible Chris Voss. Check him out. We'll link all of his stuff down in the description of the podcast. As always, hustle, hustle. God bless. Do not be afraid to think different because those of us that think different are going to be the ones that change the world. If you have any questions, feel free to hit us up or hit Chris's team up and uh, we'll be sure to get back with you. I love you all and I will see you on the next podcast episode. Take it easy, fam. Peace. Yo, what's up, guys? You've been listening to the Think Different Theory with myself, Josh Forty, which I like to call a new paradigm of thinking. And real quick, I got a question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message of positivity and making the world a better place is if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this is out on that you like my stuff and that I'm I'm doing something right. So if you could take like three seconds out of your day and subscribe, leave a rating and a review, I would be forever grateful for you. Also, I want to hear from you. I want to know your feedback, your ideas, and your questions for future episodes. So be sure to hit me up on Instagram in the DM at Josh Forty or via email contact at thinkdifferenttheory.com.